I realized something. Uh, we were about, you know, we were going to do one more week of parables, right? Well, the whole summer is in the teaching of Jesus. And what do we have staring us in the face? Holy Week. Palm Sunday and stuff. And I was going to try, I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, but it was a bad idea. Because of the significance of what we're about to look at, I want to take two weeks to do that. And, and even that's moving very, very quickly. To look at what we know, call Holy Week. And there's, there's basically f- uh, kind of four background reasons. One is sheer material. You probably know this, but depending on which gospel you're in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, anywhere from a little over a third to almost a half of each gospel by, by word count is about that one week. Okay? It's, it's that big. The, the gospel, in fact, Mark has been called a passion narrative with a little bit of an intro on the front side of it. Uh, it's a lot of material. It's important material. Secondly, it is the climactic act in Jesus' ministry. It's very clear in the Gospels that, that he, he intentionally aimed towards Jerusalem, tried to train his disciples about that, and so he saw that as the climax. So to, to focus on that is appropriate. Third, these are the events that gave rise to our faith. Our faith did not arise, surprisingly in some, some ways, out of the ministry in Galilee. Our faith arose out of what? The events in Jerusalem that, li- that week. You know, Palm Sunday, uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter. And finally, these are the events we're about to walk into. For so that reason, we, we put the parables off, and we're going to take two weeks to do that. Um, now, as we do that, we've got three main sources of material that we can work. One, you might say, is the, the Gospel Mark or the Mark and Gospels. Mark is the earliest. Uh, Luke and Matthew are based on Mark and basically use all of Mark's material and just add some stuff. But the other thing that's interesting about Mark, Mark is the only gospel that really clearly defines this happened this day, this happened the next day, this happened the next day. So our traditional understanding of Holy Week goes back to the gospel of Mark. Secondly, we want to look at the gospel of John because the gospel of John, as we mentioned before, has more what's called topographical detail that has been archaeologically verified than the other three Gospels put together, which is to say that when John gives the little background stuff, it's priceless. And this is one of the places that John gives some information that's very, very helpful. And third, you heard that guy, that Jewish guy called Josephus, who writes a history of this period and therefore gives us some background material. So we want to mine him just a little bit. Uh, now, I will say this. For those of you, we're going to look at Palm Sunday and Monday today. For those of you who've seen this material before, and I've taught it before, there will be some treats for you. Okay, a little extra research. So look for those. Uh, John's Gospel actually sets the stage in a way that's very, very helpful because he gives a little bit of the backstory of what was going on. In Mark, Jesus just kind of shows up down there. But this is what John says. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near. So we have, we have the holiday. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They're going to go to the mikvah. They're going to go through some purification rites. They're going to be ready to go to the temple, ready to perform their duties at the holiday. As they stood in the temple, this is interesting, they're looking for Jesus. They apparently have reason to believe that he might come. They were asking one another, what do you think? Surely he would not come to the festival will he why would he not dangerous yeah where's ground zero for his enemies right where he's headed okay now the chief priests and the pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where he was should let them know 
big Jesus fans, so that they might arrest him. So this is how John states, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Apparently left Galilee, probably crossed on the other side of the river. He may have come through Samaria, but it probably came down through Perea. And then you would cross over. Remember John the Baptist was baptizing? That's the crossing point. And you would come up and Jericho's there and Bethany's right there. Now, for a little bit of a map, this is where this story of Holy Week's going to lay out. We've got Bethany, we've got Bethphage, we've got the Mount of Olives, we've got the East Gate, and we've got Jerusalem. Now, here's what's interesting. Today, all this is inside the city of Jerusalem, courtesy of a wall that Israel built. Now it takes a little while to get to Bethany. You've got to loop way around. But it's only two miles. So Jesus is basically going to base in Bethany with who? Mary, Martha, and according to the Gospel of John, Lazarus. And he's basically going to commute each day. He's going to walk in. Two miles. Doable? Yeah. You know, particularly if it saves your life. Uh, it goes back and forth there. Now, four things stand out about what John tells us in the Holy Week. First of all is, is the date. What's the date according to John? Passover. Why is Passover significant? You remember? What does it celebrate? Yeah. It is unique among the Jewish holidays. It is the only Jewish holiday, well, actually, if you're on Hanukkah, too, but it's a Jewish holiday that celebrates a political event. The political event was they were oppressed by Pharaoh in Egypt. They cried out to God, and as the Bible says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivered them out of Egypt to Sinai, to get Torah, and then brought them to the Promised Land. So Passover is a holiday where the Jews celebrate that God can deliver you from the foreign oppressor. Relevant? Relevant. Okay. Two, the location. And by the way, with the date, Josephus is the one who tells us that there were in the first century a long series of massive um, incidents that happened uh, and that nearly every one of them happened at Passover and nearly one of them, every one of them happened in Jerusalem and particularly the temple. You've heard the mooning story, right? Anybody not heard the mooning story? You need to hear the mooning story. This is one of his stories. One incident that's kind of humorous is that a Roman soldier, to show his contempt for the Jews, up on the parapets there, basically dropped his trousers, <laughs> waved his fanny, and made appropriate sound effects, showing his contempt for the Jews. A riot broke out. And according to Josephus, by the end of the day, 8,000 people were dead. And it was not funny. But that gives you the idea. There is no place... No, no time period in which the tension and the potential for violence is higher than at Passover. Because we're remembering God delivers us from oppressors. And who do we have controlling the country? We've got Rome. Okay? And usually the flashpoint is going to be Jerusalem. And almost always the flashpoint is at the temple. And you know in the, in the 70s and 80s, remember there were several instances in Jerusalem between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know, is still a flashpoint, okay? Third, crowds. Population of Jerusalem is, normally, first century, wild guess, 30-ish thousand. At Passover, it swells to, according to Josephus, over 500,000 people. They're coming from everywhere, all over, the, all over the empire, all over the world, because they want to celebrate that. We got a flashpoint date 
we've got a flashpoint location, and we've got a half a million Jews. What is this a recipe for? Okay, no surprises here. Jesus' enemies are waiting for him. The crowds are expectant. Apparently, they have some reason to believe that Jesus might show. Could have showed every year, we don't know. And so John, John does a wonderful painting of the scene for us. Josephus gives us one more piece of information, which you've read uh, Crossan and Borg's book the last week. You know this, or you've heard this. That holiday, and every year, there are two processions in Jerusalem. Okay? You've got Jesus going to come over the Mount of Olives. He's going to come up, and he's going to enter Jerusalem by the East Gate. And who's working his way in from the other direction? Pontius Pilate and the Romans. Pontius Pilate does not live in Rome. He lives at Caesarea uh, Maritima, the city by the sea. It's, if you're a good Roman, that's where you want to live, right? By the sea, nice and cool, got breezes. Do you want to be in Jerusalem with those pesky Jews? No. But do you need to be in, Rome, in Jerusalem if you're going to be held accountable for what happens? Yes. And so, begrudgingly, he's going to come, he's going to bring his cohorts. He doesn't have legions, but he's got several hundred troops he can bring down. And the reason he's going to come back is he wants to be there just in case something goes wrong. We know from Josephus, most years, something went wrong. So that's the setting for Palm Sunday. Now we turn to Mark. When they were approaching Jerusalem, at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to the village ahead of you. Now, if he's starting at Bethany, that would be the village of Bethphage. It's just, it's half a mile. Immediately when you enter it, you will find tied there a coat that has never been ridden, pretty specific, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Like, oh, police, thief, somebody's stealing my coat. Just say this, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And by the way, if you do that, you won't get arrested. They went and found the colt tied near the door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? Good neighbors, by the way. They told him what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. That is interesting. Okay. Now, he starts at Bethany, Bethany. He's going up to Bethphage. He sends two disciples ahead, and they're going to pick up the colt there, and then from there they're going to move on down. What strikes some commentators as being very interesting about this is that the whole thing smacks of being prearranged, doesn't it? Okay. And it's, been, it's almost like it's been scripted. I mean, you've got things like go and you will find. If anyone asks you, say this. They found the cold tide. They told him what Jesus said. They were allowed to take it. It looks like somebody has very carefully prepared the ground and laid the groundwork so that this can happen there. Now, it so happens in Luke, we were told earlier that as Jesus was coming down, he actually sent some of his disciples ahead of him to make arrangements in Jerusalem. And this may be what's going on here, Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. Would it make sense? An advance party? Do some prep? Uh, somebody had made arrangements for the cult, and then when he sent the two others up ahead, those arrangements had already been made, so this may be it. Picking up the story. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the ground, 
that's interesting. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. I'm sure the owners of the fields greatly appreciated that. <laughs> then those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting this, this word that is the same in Hebrew and Greek, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. And again, it ends as it begins, Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now, it is the Gospel of John, again, who wonderful purveyor of details here, who tells us that the leafy branches were actually palm branches, which is where we get Palm Sunday from. It's from John's little detail there. And it turns out palm branches are key to the story. Gone up to Bethphage, now he's going to go up, and basically what he's going to do, he's going to come off the top of the mountain, and if you've ever been to Israel and walked that, it is one steep puppy coming down. Uh, going down there, and it's this point that he picks up the crowds, and they begin throwing their cloaks down in front of him, and they begin ripping branches off palm trees, throwing it to the ground, and all that begins to go. Now, the crowd in the story has obviously worked itself into a frenzy. The question is why? What do they sense is going on? What are they expectant of? What do they, th what do they think is about to happen? How are they interpreting this? Uh, and the key seems to lie uh, in what the crowd does and what the crowd says because the crowd does a series of two symbolic acts. What would they be? Cloaks and palms. Okay. And then they make a series of statements. So those two symbolic acts... Uh, they throw their cloaks on the ground. Now, this is one of the new pieces, because th this week I was reading that and going, I have no idea what that is about. Uh, so I did a little digging around. It turns out that this is actually, like palm leaves, has, is an ancient tradition in Israel. And it w you do this on one very particular type of occasion. You do it when you want to acknowledge that somebody is the anointed king. Like you bow, like you take off your hat before a king, who's, who, by the way, who's just been anointed, the way you throw, show respect is you do a Walter Riley. You take off your cloak and you throw it down so that the king can come over it. We know that because it's actually in the Bible from 2 Kings 9. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. They hurriedly took off their cloaks, spread them for him on the bare steps, and proclaim, Jehu is king. So best guess is this is exactly what's going on. They're throwing their cloaks. What's, what's the message they're sending? Jesus is the, and the Hebrew word for king is, well, Melech, but the other term we use would be Messiah. Messiah king. They mean the same. They also grab palm branches. They begin to wave them. They throw them on the ground. Uh, different symbol, very similar meaning. In the ancient Near East, this is only have one meaning, and this is some, some new stuff we didn't have last time. I did not know this. For centuries, in the Greek world and in the Roman world, palm leaves were symbols for victory. This is an old Greek uh, mosaic. And what's the guy waving? And what's the little horse he got all over his head? Palm branches. So, Now, this started, actually it was pre-Greek, but the Greeks picked it up about, four century B, about 400 B.C., and then the Romans got it from the Greeks. So this is all over the Mediterranean. This is a universal symbol of victory. Palm leaves are used to celebrate victories, whether they're military or athletic. If a person is an athlete and wins something, what do you give them? Yeah, laurel reef, and you wave palm branches at it, saying, you know, what they are. Uh, there are several well-known military victory stella 
that have been stuck up that have palm leaf decorations all over them. By the way, the Latin word palma means victory. And do you know the word, uh, we get the idea that palms deal with peace? You know where that comes from? I did not know this. Peace after you win a battle. That's what a palm leaf is for. Victorious peace. My enemies are dead. My enemies are crushed kind of thing. So next time you wave a palm leaf, just think about that. Uh, within Judaism, it had become a symbol for greeting a military deliverer. Can't prove this, but since the Greeks took over in the 4th century B.C., the area the Jews were in, I'd be willing to bet the Jews probably picked this up from the Greeks. Particularly, they used it when one would throw out the occupying powers. Do you remember the Maccabees? There's that wonderful story, you know, the, the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, oppresses the people, the Maccabees revolt, and Judas Maccabees, the one who finally throws them out, goes into Jerusalem and rededicates the temple, Maccabees 13. The Jews enter Jerusalem with praise and palm branches. Now, why would they do that? Because their great enemy had been crushed and removed to Israel. So, palm branches, symbol for victory, particularly relevant for military, for throwing out the oppressor. Now, the crowd reinforces the meaning of the branches, but what they cry out, they, they have a series of cries. The first one is Hosanna. Uh, some Bibles, the last three Bibles, by the way, new, new translations don't translate it this way, but traditionally, your Bible translates this as save us, which implies what? What does it mean to save us? What would you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, military. The way I was raised, it was save your soul. It was a religious kind of thing, you know. The political implications of this are, I think, are relatively new. Literally, it means deliver us. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's language from the Exodus. You know, deliver us like you did at the Exodus. Uh, it's a cry not so much for spiritual salvation from sin as political deliverance from an oppressor. By the way, the word is in the par imperative. Remember your English? Don't, not just deliver us, deliver us now. This is what they're crying. Deliver us now 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 it turns out that what they're actually doing is they're quoting a psalm it's what's called a royal enthronement psalm it's it's one of the psalms that when you when you anoint someone a king this is done the particular king this psalm is about is david deliver us hosanna we beseech you O lord O lord we beseech you that hebraic repetition give us victory don't save our souls deliver us as you delivered the israelites from the oppressive pharaoh at the exodus the very event, why are, they, why are they in Jerusalem this week? What are they celebrating? Yeah, no rocket science here. Now, the crowd seems to clearly have this in mind, and this becomes more evident when we hear the next thing they say. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Turns out this is again a quotation, and it's Psalm 118 again. It just continues the quotation. Uh, here it goes. Psalm 118, deliver us, Hosanna, we beseech you, O Lord, O Lord, we beseech you, give us victory. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in the psalm, this is King David. King David is known for a lot of things, one of which is he's their greatest warrior king who extended the battle. I mean, the, the Jews of this day, you'll find some of the settlers who still want the greater Israel to have the borders that David had given them because they were the most expansive they had. The hope for returning Davidic heir, a Davidic figure, a royal messianic figure, a king who would overthrow the oppressors is rampant. If you don't doubt that, just go read uh, Psalms of Solomon 17, and you'll get smash, trash, and bash the heathens who oppress us. You know. 
The crowd is proclaiming Jesus to be this king. Is it pretty clear? It's going to get clearer. We have now the crowd's climactic cry. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Problem. Is there already a kingdom in place? Whose kingdom is it? And if David's kingdom is coming, whose kingdom is going? Okay, there's some implications here. The crowd ends again by saying, Hosanna, deliver us now one final time. Now, it doesn't take a genius here to figure out what the crowd's up to. Cloaks, branches, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of God, Hosanna, deliver us, save us. You know, they want Jesus to be that messianic figure who would deliver them from oppression. And they won it, by the way, yesterday. Um, so during the holiday that celebrates God's deliverance of Israel from the oppressor, the very reason they come to Jerusalem, that's why they want it now. Everything is fraught with expectation. Could this be the guy? Is this the one who will do it? Which raises the question, is the crowd misunderstanding Jesus? Now, the way I was raised... Jesus' teachings were all purely spiritual. Anybody else raised in that school of thought? Okay. So obviously, and I, I remember sermons on this, the crowd misunderstood Jesus. Anybody else ever heard that line? Okay. I don't think so. You know. Or has Jesus carefully, deliberately set the stage to evoke exactly this response? Now, there is evidence that Jesus has set the stage. He's carefully, methodically, prepared the ground to send a very specific message. And so lo let's look at that real quick. The evidence lies in what he does coming down that mountain uh, and then what Jesus does on that day. Uh, he's going to perform a series of acts, any one of which is like throwing a match on gasoline. But if you do them in s together in sequence, it is a pr provocative off, off the scale. Okay. The first thing he does is he descends the Mount of Olives mounted on a donkey. Now, we'll do that with our children next week, and we'll play, we'll kind of have fun with that. But that's an odd thing to do, isn't it? Why are you going to come down? You know, you could descend them out of olives. I don't know I'd want to do it on a donkey. I've been down that thing, and I, I don't want to be on anything if I come down. I want to have both feet squarely <laughs> on the ground, you know. Well, he does it because it's symbolic, and it's symbolic of two things. The first thing it's symbolic of is, according to the Old Testament, when Solomon entered Jerusalem, to be crowned king, and there was a little bit of you know, succession issues there, when he came to grab Jerusalem and claim Jerusalem as his capital, he came in or on the donkey, and he came riding down the Mount of Olives to enter it. So he'd done that. Well, turns out the prophet Zechariah had foretold that the, when the future Messiah would come, he would enter Jerusalem just as Solomon had done it. And that, by the way, this would be a time of deliverance from the foreign oppressor. So if you see a guy on a donkey <laughs> coming down the Mount of Olives, pay attention, because this may be deliverance. Yes? Was it a donkey or was it a colt? Hebrew parallelism. You say something, you say it again. Different wording. That's what we've got here. Now, Matthew does not understand this. So Matthew literally depicts Jesus, if you read carefully, one leg on a donkey one on a foal because he doesn't understand that it's it's parallelism it's the same thing two ways of saying the same thing 
kind of thing. But Matthew didn't know that, so he's a little awkward, Matthew, if you want to get visual with that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, here's Zechariah. This is what Zechariah's prophecy. You better believe that the people in Jerusalem that day know their prophecy, right? This is what they're hoping for. This is Zechariah. See, the day is coming when the Lord will go forth. What will the Lord do? Fight against those nations. That's when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand where? On the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Lord will become king over all the earth. That means somebody's got to exit, right? Because God's going to do some whipping. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Your king comes to you triumphant and glorious. He just like Solomon did. Humble and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's all one critter. Okay. Matthew doesn't know that, but it's all one critter. Okay. Mounted on, sending him out of olives, mounted on a donkey on Passover. Are you sending a message? Some people think so. Uh, particularly people grabbing their cloaks and grabbing the branches. They think they know what Jesus is saying. Then Jesus would have entered by the East Gate. Now, this gets tricky because the East Gate is a very, very provocative and powerful symbol of the, of the long-awaited Messiah, uh, and it's not explicitly stated. Nowhere in the New Testament does it say that Jesus entered the East Gate, but all biblical scholars pretty much assume he did. Why? Well, it's clearly the intended story for two reasons. One is, if you come off the Mount of Olives, what's in front of you? If you're going to go through another east gate, you've got to go around so it's in front of you. The second thing, though, is that there's a lot of symbolism here. Entering the east gate on Passover, particularly on a donkey, coming down the Mount of Olives, all adds up. Here's the symbolism. Ezekiel had prophesied that the Messiah, he calls him the prince. When Messiah would come, how would we know? Messiah will enter through the east gate. Jewish tradition associates the East Gate with the Messiah who would deliver Israel. By the way, that is the reason if you go to Jerusalem today, there's the East Gate. It is sealed. Why? They don't want anybody coming through it. Because if somebody comes through it, what does that stir up? Expectations Messiah will come. By the way, they still have that issue in Israel to this day. Jewish tradition further connected this to the Exodus. As a matter of fact, the Talmud says that we only had this expectation that Messiah would come through the East Gate on one holiday. Guess what holiday that was? Passover, according to the Talmud. Everything in the narrative says that Jesus has carefully staged it. He's chosen Passover. He's chosen the Mount of Olives. He's riding a donkey. We've, we've sent people to set all this stuff up. He comes down the East Gate. Do you think you understand what Jesus is saying? What's he saying? There's all this debate. Well, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, I don't think that's going to hold water. If you say you're the Messiah, then you have to kind of explain what kind of Messiah you are because they have all kinds of beliefs. But I don't think there's any doubt he's sending the message he is the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. He's doing it in the most public way possible. Now, if, as some people think, that Jesus is entering Jerusalem at precisely the moment that Pontius Pilate is coming in from the other direction, they're probably within a day, but maybe at the same time, then all the Romans would have been conveniently where? On the other side, the other side which is where you would love to have them, right? Uh, Palm Sunday then ends with this climactic and chilling statement. I think it's one of the most chilling statements in the Bible. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went directly to the temple. This is the target. 
Everything he's done has been aimed like a laser beam. We're going to the temple. <coughs> he looked around at everything. He's ready to do something. But as it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Stage is set. He's deliberately provoked the crowds. They're in a frenzy of expectation. But Jesus is unable to do the final climactic act. I really believe that Jesus intended to do what happened on Monday on Sunday. That's what I think it says. He intended for all of this stuff to climax in an act in the temple, except it's too late, people are leaving, and he couldn't do it because it was already too late. Which is to say the final act of Palm Sunday is in fact on Holy Monday. But in fact, they're connected together. So Monday, this will go much quicker. Chapter 11. The following day, they came from Bethany. And where did they go immediately? Jerusalem entered the temple. He's just going to pick up where he left off. He began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. I'm convinced this is exactly what Jesus meant for Palm Sunday to end with. This was the climax of what he hoped to do. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. The temple is 32 football fields big, which raises an interesting question. How do you shut the whole thing down? Yeah. Uh, there's got to be a bottleneck somewhere in the, the Nicanor Gate. That's not where most people think this happened. We don't know where it happened, but there's conjectures. The Nicanor Gate, where you carry your, your, your animal through to give it to the priest, the sacrifice is only about 12 feet wide. And that is the one place you could probably do that, which may have happened there. And he starts saying, Jesus starts quoting scripture. It is written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Prophet is... Bible test 101, Isaiah. But you made it a den of robbers, Jeremiah. John gives us a detail. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. I don't think he cleared 32 football fields. So I'm thinking again, he's at some type of a bottleneck where he can have that kind of effect very, very, unless it's just hyperbole with the sheep and the cattle. So Jesus attacks the temple, he disrupts it, and he temporarily... I don't think for any great period of time, but at least for a few moments, he shuts it down. Is that a big deal? If you're a Jew, that's a big deal. If you run the temple, it's a big deal. So the question, what in the world is he doing? The meaning seems to lie in the two scriptures he quotes as he does that, at least as, as near as we can figure out. He's quoting Isaiah. He's quoting Jeremiah, both of whom had severely criticized the temple. Actually, they criticized the temple leadership for not doing what God had intended them to do. House of Prayer, Isaiah 56. It's a radical call for inclusiveness. The temple is intended as a house of prayer for who? Problem, first century, who actually gets in? Only Jews to one point, and then have beyond that, only men. And beyond that, only priests. And beyond that, only the high priest. Uh, we've got the letter restes and that stuff that we looked at before. And by the way, we also have other things that keep people out. What's the purpose of Sabbath, kosher, and circumcision? We Jews do it. You non-Jews don't. So in the first century, after the Maccabean period, everything about Jewish identity had become us and them, we and they. And by the way, they are excluded. And so we kind of circle the wagons. And Jesus is reminding them that the temple was actually intended as a house of prayer for everyone. Okay. Den of robbers. Interesting. Often people look at this, and who do you think the robbers are? This what you've been taught in Sunday school. 
money changers and stuff, you know. Poor little capitalist gets getting nailed left, right, and center. I'm sorry. Uh, that's not the point of the passage. If you look at what Jesus quotes, it's a fundamentally different message. Uh, Jeremiah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and do your doings, and let me dwell with you in this place, this place of the temple. So who is he speaking to? Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal? Who's making offerings? This is not the common people. This is not money changers and stuff. These are the priests, the people running the temple. And then come and stand before me in this house at the altar, which is called by my name, and say, we're safe. All the oxen free. Okay. Where are we safe? We're in the temple of the Lord. God wouldn't possibly do anything against the temple, would he? Well, he already has once. Only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your sight? Now, that critique is not leveled at ordinary people, and it's not really leveled at the money changers. They're not the real issue. The real issue is the people who are actually running the temple, the chief priests and the ruling elite. Now, we know this further because immediately after this happens, guess what group suddenly figures out, oh, he's talking about us. You know, Mark eleven eighteen. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they want to kill him. They're not dumb. They know exactly what this is about. You know, he's disrupted the temple and he's quoted scripture against them. Tuesday. By the way, ordinarily we skip from Palm Sunday to Monday Thursday. That's if you're really <laughs> religious, right? If you're not quite as religious, you skip from Palm Sunday to Easter or maybe Easter to Christmas. Who knows? You know? uh, <laughs> and there's some things happening these days. And these things are very, very critical. And it's all building, you know. Tuesday, the third day in the row, he's going to go directly to the temple. This time, his enemies will be ready. And we're going to see a coordinated attack on Jesus that will then lead us to Wednesday, to Thursday, and to Friday. So... I hope you don't mind that we omitted a couple of parables. I thought that this might have a little more punch to it. Yes. 